This is the Right Guys Podcast, where apparently the only way to get election fraud overturned is to be a Democrat. And now your host, Max McGuire. Welcome back to another edition of the Right Guys Podcast. My name is Max McGuire. Mr. Producer Josh is out today. Not sick, nothing bad or anything, just had something come up. So he's out today doing the show solo. So uh, hit that thumbs up, hit that like button, subscribe, comment, 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 because uh, got a lot to talk about today. Kind of, li- I don't think too clickbaity, the headline, breaking election results overturned, because that is one of the biggest stories of the day. An election in Louisiana, specifically in uh, Cato, Cato, probably mispronouncing that, Parish, which in Louisiana, Parish is kind of like a county. So the election for sheriff had been decided by one vote, one vote, and that didn't sit well with a lot of people, and they challenged it. They challenged it in court, and what this judge has found is that because it was decided by one vote originally, and because there were, I believe, 11 instances of illegal votes being cast, unlawful or rushed votes being cast, Because it was decided by one vote and because there were 11 illegal votes cast, that was enough to cause uh, cause some pause and to question whether or not the results were legitimate. Now listen, plenty of people have won legitimately by one, two, three, four votes. That in and of itself is not proof that an election has been stolen or that illegal votes made the difference. A lot of times it's just people didn't get out and vote. But in this case, they were able to identify 11. I want to make sure I get it right. 11 illegal votes. Here is the here is a specific quote. Justice Blake, he said, quote, this runoff election involves a one vote margin. It was proven beyond any doubt that there were at least 11 illegal votes cast and counted. It is legally impossible to know what the true vote should have been. So this harkens back to something I was talking about and lots of people were talking about in 2020, which is the biggest challenge is not necessarily proving election fraud. The biggest challenge is the time frame in which you are forced to do it. Now, in a local election, that time frame is a little bit wider. But for federal presidential elections, the time frame is actually laid out in statute. This is Ballotpedia. They have really good information just for basic uh, election laws and things like that. But for 2020, just to roll back the clock a little bit, for 2020, the deadline to resolve election disputes was six days before the Electoral College was to meet and vote. So basically, if you dispute the election, if you believe that there were fraudulent results, believe that illegal ballots tipped the scales one way or another, the deadline to resolve those disputes is written into statute at 3 U.S.C. Section 5 that it has to be settled with six days before the Electoral College meets. This is called the Safe Harbor Provision. Now, in 2020, the Electoral College met on December 14th, so that meant that the deadline to resolve these was December 8th. So what what we all remember was just how hard it was to get a judge to hear a case on the merits. And then when the judge, when courts actually heard the cases on the merits, like that infamous 
Pennsylvania Supreme Court case, they declared that, yeah, you probably have a point, but you waited too long. Latches had to come into play. Latches is a legal concept that if you know something's wrong, you allow it to happen and deliberately wait too long to fight it, you have to deal with the result, basically, which was ludicrous because you can't fight an election until you've proven that you have been harmed. It's really, really crazy. If you file a lawsuit too far before an election, they claim that you don't have standing because you haven't been harmed. If you file it after an election and can prove that you have been harmed, they say that you waited too long. So there really is no good way to do this when you're going up against liberal judges. But that was the problem in 2020. There were lots of people coming forward with what they presented to be evidence. Evidence that these ballots should have been counted. These ballots should have been counted. These ballots were questionable. Those ballots were questionable. And there was a mad race to get before a judge and to convince him, not beyond any reasonable doubt, not beyond a shadow of a doubt, but to convince him or her enough that a trial should be held to look into the matter further. And what we saw in all of these cases, whether it be Arizona, though Arizona is kind of still creeping along as it relates to um, their state elections, but when, whether it's Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, right? These cases, they couldn't get a case heard on the merits. So they made these allegations. They presented base allegations and none of the judges were willing to accept that as proof. Now, the difference here in Louisiana is it was an election decided by one vote. When an election is decided by one vote, the barrier to convince a judge that it might not be legitimate is extremely, extremely low. You theoretically only need to find one bad vote to at least make it a tie, but you have to find one bad vote. That's not hard to do. And in this case, Louisiana, they found 11. That's not the only case that we've seen like this. We saw a similar case play out in Bridgeport, Connecticut. If you remember this, um, earlier this year, there was a primary election, Democrat primary election. It was decided by, I believe it was a couple hundred votes. Um, a few hundred, I think it was between two and three hundred votes. Well, that was litigated, brought before the court. And the plaintiffs in this case showed the court that, yeah, it was decided by between two and 300 votes, but we have evidence to suggest that 400 some odd people submitted a total of over a thousand ballots. And in that state, you're not allowed to do that. Not allowed. It's not allowed for 400 people to submit that many ballots. So that's another cut and dry situation. If, a, if an election is decided by less than 300 votes and you can show someone, you show a judge that there were illegal ballots cast in the excess of the margin, what do you get? You get a new vote ordered. A new vote ordered. That, that's not hard to understand. It makes a lot of sense. The challenge in a presidential election is that you have to prove this in a very, very, very small window. Because while that safe harbor deadline is in 2020, it was December 8th, we'll go back to the screen. In Alabama, it was 1125, right? Let's go to Arizona. Arizona, it was 1130, 30th of November. So 
that's not a lot of time, right? For, uh, uh, second Tuesday of November, you have from then until the last day of November, the second last day of November, that's for Arizona. In Georgia, it was even earlier. It was the 20th. What was it? What was it? November 8th was, was, was the day. It was the second Tuesday of November. You have less than two weeks in Georgia to prove that an election was illegitimate. That's not a lot of time. It's not a lot of time whatsoever. Keep going, scrolling down even further until we find the next state that uh, was, yeah, here, Michigan, 1123. 1123, that's just a, a, a tad over two weeks. If you remember what was going on in Michigan with Detroit, where they couldn't reconcile the number of ballots and the number of voters that had been checked in. Well, that's always been a problem in Detroit. They claim it's just perpetual ineptitude and that these local election volunteers just can't seem to get one plus one equals two right. But when you actually dive into the way their system works, as soon as that fraudulent count or that incorrect count is signed off on at the precinct level, it can't be fixed. The state law and the state mechanisms don't allow it to be fixed, even in an audit situation. So in, in, in Michigan, you had about two weeks to prove that it wasn't legitimate. Nevada was 11-24. A little bit more than two weeks. You see where I'm going with this? It's set up to fail. Pennsylvania was 11-23, about two weeks. All of this was set up to fail. This system is not designed. The system was not designed to prevent election fraud because the system, as you can clearly see with these dates, the system presumes that election fraud doesn't happen. How can anyone expect for a fraudulent vote to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt in less than two weeks in some of these cases? It's just not possible. And what we saw as those cases got filed is a reluctance from the judiciary. Let's, let's be at least a little fair. The nicest word to use would be a reluctance. Reluctance from a judiciary towards interfering and putting their finger on the scale. Though we all know it wasn't just sheer reluctance. Well, in this Louisiana case, you don't have these hard and fast deadlines. Though you did see that it, it moved incredibly quickly. Same with Bridgeport. Bridgeport, Connecticut moved incredibly quickly. That's a problem. And as we've covered on this show, in order to, let's presume that these deadlines are possible. Let's presume it is possible to fully uncover. Yeah, sure, the other side has years to plan how they're going to steal an election. You only have two weeks to prove that they did it. With the state, with the other side, doing everything they can to stop you and run out the clock. Let's presume it's possible. Well, what would need to happen? You would need for everyone, everyone to be going, at, everyone working to prove the fraud, to be working as fast as they possibly could. You would need everyone working towards identifying and uncovering and proving the fraud to show all of their evidence, to put all of their cards on the table, 
and not hold anything close to the vest. You can't meet a two-week deadline. You can't week a... I mean, here, we're three years after the fact. And we still have election integrity experts who are very reluctant to put everything they have out there for the American people, law enforcement, courts to see. I have a clip from yesterday on Steve Bannon's show, War Room, where Professor David Clemens was the guest. Now, I like Professor Clemens. I think he's a, a decent man. He's very intelligent. Every time I've ever had a conversation with him, it's all been on the air. But uh, he's he knows his stuff, and he is reasonable. We've played a few clips on this podcast where he's very reasonable in, in talking about this. He was asked a question by Steve Bannon, not dissimilar from the question that I posed on this podcast a week, week and a half ago, almost two weeks ago at this point, asking why people, and this wasn't an attack on him, but asking why the people in the election integrity movement, why if they claim to have these smoking guns, and that's my word, not his, would they not use it every chance they get to prove fraud. In this situation, he's asking David Clements, if you can prove that the election was stolen, why didn't you work with Fox News, for example, so they could avoid having to pay hundreds of millions of dollars for their defamation lawsuit if you have the evidence that can prove it was stolen? Let's listen to that clip. Enthusiasm of kids because they're getting screwed it's 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 all gone but that's we can win the deal but i keep saying it's a big difference between winning the deal like with 74 million votes and closing the deal your assessment right now of where we stand as far as the ability to close well it's going to depend on improving the terrain and I, that's why i've been on this mantra with mike lindell and many others that you have to either get rid of feckless administrators that are running corrupt elections in addition to removing pieces from the board, and that means the machinery and the rig software. You can continue to you know, try to gin up um, voter enthusiasm, get people to do the traditional ho, ho, methods ho, of- Ho, whoa, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on. We're gonna go down this path. You gotta help me out here, brother. The Murdochs who throw nickels around like they're manhole covers wrote an $800 million check and didn't put up a defense. And yeah. if memory serves me correctly, and I don't want to, you know, besmirch some of my colleagues because I love these guys. Last time I looked, aren't aren't the machine companies winning in every case throughout the country? I'm just saying, you're the lawyer. You tell me. Yeah. Well, if if you think that a corrupt judiciary gets a monopoly on truth, then I think you've got something there. But the the reality is, is when you look at the Rasmussen polls, over 70 percent of all voters are in lockstep with our positions. And so, it, you know, Satan's going to work in the legal terrain because that's where he can fight in the shadows. And we're bringing stuff to the light. Um, the convenient notion about the Fox settlement is, is exactly what you just said. There's really no discovery. There is no analysis of these vital cash vote records. Uh, there was no analysis of the source code. And who did it favor? Hang, it hang favored, on. Hang, hold, yo, hold, hang on. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. You, there's a half a dozen guys like you, not not the Lindells, but because and, and, Mike's a fighter, but I'm talking about serious people who spend a time with this, including the case in Georgia, which is all liberals, brought for Stacey Abrams, which probably does the best job of breaking down the problems in the machines. Did Fox 
Anybody associated with Murdoch, any of those lawyers, they were paying tens of millions of dollars for it. They had the best law firms in the country. Did anybody in any of these things reach out to you or any of your colleagues that are that are the machine guys, as I call them? No, and, and it, it's it's malpractice. I mean, the fact that they would write a check like that and not even get to look at the source code or at the cast vote record summaries is is akin to malpractice, in my opinion. Um, why they're not reaching out? I don't know, Steve, but we know the, the experts. We know the people that have actually looked at these machines. And it's not just Dominion. It's ESNS. It's the software. And um, we've done the analysis. And to date, but the, over but, three but, years but wouldn't strong. those But wouldn't, those, wouldn't the lawyers – look, you're a great lawyer, right? You, you've been a prosecutor. You're, you're a tough, smart lawyer. The lawyers for their side are saying, hey, Dave, the reason – we're not reaching out. We don't even need that level. This thing is so obvious that the machines are not a problem that it would be a farce uh, for the Mur- Murdochs would not have a defense in calling you guys. I mean, that's you do understand that's what they're saying. So how do you counter that? Yeah, I know what they're saying. <laughs> well, I, I think they're full of it. Uh, I mean, the fact that matters, the evidence is the evidence. And here I am. I've been saying the same things. I've probably been as vocal as Mike Lindell, but I don't have uh, the resources of Mike Lindell. Why is it that I get a pass and I haven't been sued by Dominion yet? They don't want to have sworn testimony. They don't want to have the records put out there. And it- I got to pause it for a second, maybe come back to it. The question is a fair question. I don't want to go after Professor Clemens. I like him. I think he's doing good work. I think his heart's in it. Um, but the question is a fair question. And again, as I said, it's not that dissimilar to what I was talking about a couple weeks ago. If you have this evidence, why isn't it why isn't it being used? Why are we having all of these situations where well, I just realized that my screen over there is not doing well. Um, why are we having all these situations where these cases are being lost? And there's as as he just said, no discovery, no attempt at forcing discovery. What's going on here? How and I don't think it's David Clements' fault. I do think that there are other people in that group that Bannon talked about, the group of the machine guys, who have spent so long saying that they have it, that they have the evidence, they can prove it. And it's not getting proven. And when we covered this, the, the line I put out there, which I think still applies today, it applies today more than ever, right, is it's, it's time to shit or get off the pot. I mean, the best time to unveil all of this evidence would have been the day after the 2020 election, right? The second best time is right now. It's the old analogy, uh, the old uh, saying, best time to plant a tree was 10 years ago. Second best time is right now. I'm just, it, it confuses me. It confuses me how other election integrity experts, not necessarily David Clemens, how they continue to keep what they call smoking guns close to the vest, saying that they have it, but then also deliberately slow walking court cases that could potentially get discovery and not revealing their evidence. And we just keep doing what we're doing. I mean, something has to give at some point. Talked on this show about Joe Oltman, who I assume is one of the machine guys that Bannon was talking about. It is interesting. Um, I, again, I like David Clements. He, and some days of the week, he takes the seat that I used to have 
on the Conservative Daily Podcast. He's a smart guy. Um, I don't think I've ever seen him mention Joe's name on War Room. Maybe he has. Maybe I've missed it. It's interesting. Joe has, as we've covered on this podcast, as everyone knows, claims he was on this call and he heard evidence on this call that the election was stolen. Now, everyone who he's accused has denied it. Okay. Joe says that he has a source. Joe only claimed he has a source who helped him get on the call who can corroborate that the call happened. Okay. But he won't name the source because he's afraid of what's going to happen to the source. Now, that's a, a very fair fear. It's a fear that many journalists, though Joe has contended time and time again he's not a journalist, it's a fear that many journalists are legitimately presenting in terms of anonymous sources. And there are journalists who have gone to jail to protect their anonymous sources. The issue that I have is twofold. I was talking to someone today and they kind of opened my eyes about this. On the one hand, the guy who is the source is allegedly a former member of Antifa. It is really confusing to me and hard for me to understand how it is worth it to, how it's somehow justifiable, understandable, to allow all of this to continue because you don't want anything bad to happen to a member of Antifa. Especially in a case of someone like Joe Oltman, where anytime you mention Antifa, he has no shortage of violent ends that he would like for them to meet. That's the one part. And even if it was true that he would face violence, it seems to me, and maybe this is a naive way to look at it, it seems to me that with all the money spent on all the litigation, there would be money in there somewhere to provide this man with protection. But again, maybe that's overly simplistic. The second view, which is something I was talking to someone today about, which kind of opened my eyes, is what happens, God forbid, any of these people who claim to have evidence that they're holding close to the best, what would happen if, God forbid, they were to pass away? Now, I don't wish that on anyone. Me and Joe, we've had our ups and downs. I wouldn't wish that on him. I don't wish that on anyone. But in the world we live in, it's an unfortunate fact, especially for someone like Joe, who it seems, based on what I've been reading, he continues to have threats made against his life. What happens if someone claims to have evidence of a crime and passes away before that evidence can be actually heard at a trial. There's a case going on in New Jersey that was brought to my attention dealing with an issue very similar to this. Timothy Puskis was originally convicted in uh, the killing of, of a uh, former Rutgers student, Billy McCall. He was convicted of murder. He was sentenced in 2014. Well, that sentence, the conviction and sentence was reversed in 2021 and a new trial was ordered. But there's an issue. There's an issue here because the evidence that they presented at trial originally can no longer be presented. So they had played, the prosecutors had originally played a recording of conversations between the defendant and a witness 
a Wayne Stoker, who had lived in the defendant's house that were incriminating. But Stoker died before the trial. So one of the hallmark, one of the, the pillars of our justice system is that if you're accused of a crime, you have the right to confront your accuser. You have the right to confront the witnesses against you. That's one of the biggest problems with things like uh, red light cameras. If, if a camera, an automated camera, accuses you of breaking the law, how do you confront your camera on the witness stand? Well, in this case, the prosecutors used a recording from a man who had been deceased. So the defendant can't cross-examine that state's witness. I asked what happens, and again, I don't want it to happen, but what happens if the people who are holding on to this evidence, which apparently the timing isn't right to release it to the world yet, just not ready yet. What happens if the people who are holding on to this were to pass away? I mean, we talk about this all the time. What if they step off the curb and get hit by a bus? I hope it doesn't happen. But are we really supposed to just give up at that point? I mean, if, if these people have what they say they have, the risk of holding on to it when the alleged conspiracy is so vast that there are legitimate threats to people's lives, this is a hot potato. If these people have what they say they have, they are holding on to the hottest of hot potatoes the world has ever seen. Well, you get rid of the hot potato. You release the evidence. You don't sit there and let it cause second, third, third degree burns on your hands. It would, it would be the shame of all shames if that was to happen in this case. Someone was becoming incapacitated to die and the, the election that they, the information they allegedly held could have changed the world. That's what Josh says when we cover this. He says, this is your chance to become a hero. We have people in the conservative movement who are still claiming they can prove the 2020 election was stolen but they're not proving it. They can prove that a call happened, but oh no, I can't give you the source because I want to protect the source. Yeah, he's a member of Antifa, but he's one of the good ones. He's got to be protected at all costs. It's stupid. And this is coming from someone who looks at the evidence, the evidence that we've already seen just publicly available. And you say there, there was more than enough funny business, more than enough questionable behavior in 2020 to question the results. To question the results. And we're cheerleading, we're, we're, we're fighting for that to be brought before a judge so that the judge could see the evidence. But in so many of those cases, those, those claims were never heard on the actual merits. I want to look at, this is the criminal indictment of Donald Trump from Georgia. You'll see that one of the acts in the so-called criminal conspiracy was that Donald Trump and John Eastman, who is a good man, I've met John Eastman, he's a good, decent man. They submitted claims before the court that were deliberately broad, general, saying that as many as 2,506 felons voted illegally, as at least... 66,247 underage voting, underage people voted. At least 2,400 individuals voted illegally. 
because they were not listed in the state's records as having registered to vote. At least 1,043 individuals. As many as 10,315 or more dead people voted. Now, th that's deliberately vague language. That tells the court that you have an idea, but that's not a precise number. And your goal is to get discovery so that you can finally prove the number beyond any reasonable doubt. That's why we say as many as, as many as 2,506 felons voted. Well, guess what? If you tell the court that, and then the next day it comes out, oh, actually, it was only 1,000 felons voted. You didn't defraud the court because a thousand falls under as many as. And yet Donald Trump was never able to present this on the merits. But now he's facing a felony charge by saying it was false. He should have known it was false. John Eastman had suggested that they weren't completely accurate. And therefore he had filed a false document. So you can't say, I mean, if it was completely wrong, if he had said, we know that this many voted illegally, exactly, and it's off, then yeah, you filed a false document. That language is written in there specifically to ensure that if it's off, you're protected from any allegation of perjury or lying before the court because you gave it your best shot and you left it open for both interpretation and to be proven right or to be proven wrong. That's the goal of the trial. So I, I look at these cases. It's not just, just Joel, man. It's, it's, it, there's lots of, lots of election integrity experts, so-called so election integrity experts, who have positioned themselves within the conservative movement as the, as the keepers of the proof, as the keepers of the evidence but they're not releasing it. And it, it's very frustrating because I just, as I just said, if they have what they say they have and by some terrible luck, they step, in, they step out on the street and get hit by a car and are no longer able to present that evidence. Are we just supposed to let the evidence go? If you have what you say you have, you have an obligation to release it. You have an obligation to present it. Not wait for the best opportunity. Not wait for the best court case. The obligation to release what you had was before the safe harbor deadline in 2020. If you can prove it was stolen, time to do it before that. Or to do it in the intervening time before January 6th. I've said it on this show and I'll say it again. How many January 6th prisoners would have loved the ability to present this kind of evidence at their trials. Evidence that can prove beyond any doubt that the election was stolen. January 6ers would have loved that. Because then even if they did what the government claimed that they did, it wouldn't have been illegal. Because the crime, the crime that they are charged with is the attempt to interfere in the lawful transfer of power. But if you can prove that it's an unlawful transfer of power, it's an illegitimate transfer of power, then it's not a crime to try and stop it. Then you have an obligation to try and stop it. It flips the whole script on its head. 
So yeah, there are January Sixers who were incarcerated, and unfortunately, January Sixers who are now no longer with us, who would have loved to be able to present this evidence in their defense. Donald Trump, Donald Trump said on the show, facing over 700 years in prison, you, if you have proof that the election was stolen, give it to him, release it, let him win these cases so we can get back to taking the country back. You heard Steve Bannon say it. Fox News, was it 800 million something around that? The Murdochs are, are penny pinchers. They hate spending even nickel. Are we really supposed to think that it's better for them to give 800 million to Dominion voting systems rather than prove what you say you have? Release it? Tucker Carlson no longer has a show on Fox. Yeah, it might be for the best. He's doing a great job on Twitter. But I have to think he reaches more people every night on Fox than he does releasing videos. That he can he can accomplish more. Maybe reasonable people can disagree. But if you have what you say you have, and you released it, this wouldn't even be an argument. He wouldn't have been fired. All of those producers and staff that worked on the show wouldn't be out of a job. And we talk about it on the show, on this show, the butterfly effect. Butterfly effect, for anyone who doesn't like to read or watch science fiction, it's the idea that if you go back in time and step on a butterfly, this the cascading series of consequences from just stepping on that one butterfly could completely radically change the future. Right? The, the ripples that come out from that event get bigger and bigger and bigger. And finally, you step on that butterfly in the past, go back to the future, and it's radically different. Nothing like what you even thought. Because that butterfly changed the future. You look at something, it, it, if we're talking about stepping on a bug, what consequence that would have in the future? It's no, no contest. Having evidence that can prove that the 2020 election was stolen, far more significant than stepping on a bug, just think about all of the things that could have changed. It's it's crazy to think. And, and people ask me, why are you still talking about this? Because it's infuriating. As nice as it is to see a Louisiana judge step in and say, okay, no, 11 illegal ballots, you can't just win by one. You wonder, okay, last time I checked, Louisiana still uses machines. If you have what you say you have, does it even get to that point? Well, maybe not. Josh, when he's on the show, likes to say, this is a chance to be a hero. And I think he's definitely appealing to certain people's natures. But he's not wrong. Whether you consider yourself a hero or not, if you have something within your possession that can change the world for the better, and you don't release it for whatever reason, whether it be selfless, like you want to protect someone, selfish, whatever the reason. If you have this opportunity to be the world's greatest hero, what do you call someone who doesn't? If releasing it would make him a hero, or them a hero, anyone a hero, what are they if they deliberately don't release it? It's not a trick question. Simple th thesaurus. Well, we're his villain. I don't, I don't think anyone's a villain. I don't think these people are villains. 
But at some point you have to ask, what are we waiting for? At some point you have to ask, why not now? How much do we have to endure before, in in this one case, before the country's needs, the world's needs, are more important than a single former member of Antifa? I mean, there were a lot of people in January 6th who had security backgrounds, who had defense backgrounds. You would have called one of them up. They would have had 24-7 security for this Antifa guy. Like that. You don't think they would have been able to help protect this guy if it meant they didn't go to prison? Of course they would. And that's that's the real struggle. I mean, we talked about Jovan Pulitzer, and if if I have this wrong, he's happy. I'm happy to have him explain it to me. But when I see him holding things close to the vest, and I see him patenting things, and then I see him threatening to sue people for violating that patent, and nothing actually gets solved, but the the patent infringement accusations start flying, it starts to look like a patent troll. Someone who patents something and then sues anyone who violates that patent and uh, is compensated for it. And I hope that's not the case. I'm, I'm more than willing to let anyone disprove that. But when I see that the evidence isn't being released, and also, by the way, it's methods are patented and you're not allowed to release it, you're not allowed to use that method, it makes me, makes me ask a lot of questions. Because if you remember in 2020... We were all racing around trying to bring as much evidence to the forefront as possible. I, I, I remember those days. I barely slept in those days. We were looking at security footage of vans coming at 3 a.m. in Detroit, right? Uh, the allegations in Pennsylvania, all this stuff coming fast and furious. And we're trying to cover everything, right? To amplify as much as we can what's happening. It's really, it's really infuriating that at times when you need to work at the speed of light, when these deadlines are fast approaching, so many of the people who have positioned themselves to be influential or essential aren't moving that fast. Now, let's be as generous as we possibly can and that it's an issue of speed. It's not an issue of they don't have what they say they have. I'm not going to say that. Let's be as generous as we can and just say that they're just slower than everyone else. At a time when we need to work at the speed of light to get the job done and beat certain deadlines. Don't you have a problem with so many people who seem to max out, have a regulator, and can't go faster than the speed of smell? The speed that smell spreads around a room. Much, much slower than the speed of light. It's just, it's just infuriating at a time when it should be all hands, put your cards on the table, everyone work together. The impulse far too often is for, to make it proprietary, to hold it close to the vest, to monetize it, to have infighting. And you'll notice that nothing gets fixed. It's not a coincidence that in Bridgeport, a Democrat was able to get a new election, but generally Republicans can't. 
because the Democrats, you don't see this, you don't see the kind of infighting when it's, when it's Democrats. You don't see the uh, attempts to monetize information like, like the Democrats do. I don't know. It's, it's, it's saddening. It's disturbing. And it really does make you question. Again, I don't want to say it, but it makes you question if, if certain people have what they say they have. When you can no longer justify, when you can no longer explain away the refusal to put the cards on the table, it becomes harder to ignore the possibility that they don't actually have what they say they have. And that would be a shame. That would be a real, real shame. Well, that's it for this edition of the podcast. If you like the podcast, you got to subscribe. You got to subscribe. Check out the, all the links in the description. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We're on YouTube. We're on Rumble. Um, Mr. Producer Josh is not in today, so I'm having to do all of this. So I'm going to have to set up the music myself. Here we go. Um, check out all the links in the description. If you want to check out my books, my books are online. I'm, I, the third book is almost done. I'm proofreading right now. It's Service Guide to Winning Every Gun Control Argument, the abortion books online as well. And the next one will be on immigration. So check that out if you haven't already. There's a link in the description if you want to help support Josh, have him do some voiceover work. That's available there as well. But yeah, no, just subscribe, subscribe. And if you like the show, even if you watch us live, check out the audio podcast. Very important as we try and prove our numbers to advertisers. Check out the audio podcast, set up to auto-download, and you can listen as you're driving. Well, that's it for this edition of the podcast. My name is Max McGuire. Remember, everyone, that the fight to take back our country is not over yet, but the only way we win is if we all stamp and fight together. See you next time.